All right. Good morning, guys. Good morning. This is a dry run for, <laughs> for three weeks from now. Um, we're going to have a great time. We're going to be talking about um, the deacon qualifications in three weeks. I'm looking forward to it. Um, what we're going to do this morning, though, is the same thing we do every time we get together, and we're just going to talk about what the disciplines are that a, a godly man has in his life, what they are that grow him in, in holiness, and they're on the back of your your notebooks, so if you don't have those out, take a look at those or the one next to you. Um, let's do this first. Let's let's pray before we get started, okay? Father in heaven, thank you so much for our time together. Thank you for these godly men. Thank you for your grace that has gotten them up this morning and brought them here. I just pray, Lord, that what we share and what we think about this morning would be pleasing to you. It would grow us in our holiness and our love for you, and we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Okay, let's get started. So if you're here and you have a relationship with Christ, God has done something remarkable in your life, and that is that he has saved you, and he used his Holy Spirit to pour his love into you. And it gave you something that you never had before, and that was affections for God, strong affections for God that grow and grow and grow. And those are new. Those are something that you never had on your own. Those are something that you couldn't work up within yourself. And those are things that are from God. But these new affections did something that was not in your in your life before that either. And that is that there was now a tension that was in place in your life. There's a tension between your love for God that is new that God gave you and the love that you have always had for your own self-rule and the things that are in your life when you follow the inclinations of your flesh. Because your old affections didn't go away when God saved you, when he poured his love into you, he gave you new affections for him, but the pull and the attraction of your flesh is still there. Um, Galatians 5 talks a lot about the work of the Holy Spirit in a person's life, and it talks about the conflict that exists between the work of the Spirit and the work of the flesh. And uh, we will always be inclined to respond to the work of the flesh and the appeal of the flesh unless we are a man who shepherds our heart consistently with the word. The only way we consistently can respond to the appeals of the flesh with the gospel is if we are regularly meeting with the Lord in his word and in prayer. When we meet with God, we have meaningful relationships with him where he communicates with us through the reading of his word he tells us about himself he tells us about ourselves he tells us about his son and about his holy spirit about the world around us when we communicate with god in prayer we share our affections for god we adore god we confess our sin before the lord we're thanking god for things we're laying our requests before god those are the things that that describe a meaningful relationship with God. And when we do those things, we are well-equipped to respond rightly when the appeals of the flesh come to us. That is what is, I like to think of as a a gospel-motivated holiness that comes in our life because we're informed as to what kind of person we are through our reading of the word. And what that does is that helps us to think rightly about ourselves. It grows in us a holiness. And the first place we take that holiness after we're growing in our affections for the Lord is right into our home, which is our second discipline. 
And this is the place where we demonstrate the difference that the gospel has made in our lives. Um, if you're a married man, the gospel is what gives you a desire to be the servant leader that God has defined you and designed you to be. It's a chance for you to demonstrate wise, gracious authority if the Lord has given you children. If you're a single man and you have roommates, the same principles apply. The time spent shepherding your heart towards holiness is what makes you the ideal roommate. It's what makes you patient and kind and gracious when you're living with someone else and you're sharing space and you're sharing food and you're sharing other things. It makes you the best roommate that you can possibly be. And if you're here and you're single and you're not living with anybody else, these principles still apply. Because anybody who visits you in your home, anybody who interacts with you in your small group, they're under your influence, the influence that you bring with you, that you've cultivated within yourself. They are the beneficiary of your walk with the Lord. So we want to remember that as well. So those are the first two disciplines. Our third discipline is our ministry. When you're a man who has shepherded your heart, personally with the Lord and you're shepherding yourself well in your home, you're shepherding your home, that is the kind of man who is ready to step into ministry. Something that's really important for us to remember, it's really important for us to remember, is that every day you enter into ministry, you're bringing with you you're the fruit of your current walk with the Lord. You're bringing with you what you've already cultivated and that has a great, a grand effect on your ministry. If you're a man who consistently counsels your heart with truths from Scripture about your identity in Christ and who you are in Christ, and you're counseling your own life, you're guiding your decisions and your words and your deeds and your thoughts and your affections by what is true about yourself in Christ, there is going to be a sweet fruit to your ministry. It's going to be a really sweet fruit. It doesn't mean the ministry is going to be easy, but it means there are going to be sweet relationships. There's going to be sweet fruit in that ministry. But if you're a man who skips over the first discipline of shepherding your own heart and you've lost sight of shepherding your family, lost sight of shepherding your home, shepherding yourself in relationship with your roommates, your ministry is going to look a lot different. It's going to look a lot different. And I know that. I know that from personal experience when from short seasons of life I will let some of those things go. What happens is your ministry becomes increasingly defined by tasks and deadlines and responsibilities and those kinds of things. And it moves away from addressing people's heart. It moves away from talking about the gospel and the blessing of the gospel. And you've lost sight of your opportunity to speak to one another in, in love. And you've lost sight of your opportunity to contribute together as each part of the body is fitted together and it contributes to one another, providing what is needed and what is lacking. So it's so important that you shepherd your heart and you shepherd your home when you step into ministry. Our fourth discipline is the qualification. And those are laid out for you in 1 Timothy 3, verses 8 through 13. This is a really good thing to keep in front of you. Keep the deacon qualifications. Keep the elder qualifications in front of you. Have them in your mind. Know what they are. Know what they mean. Understand them. When you spend more and more time looking at these qualifications, you realize that they're not something that you do. The qualifications are something that you are. It's what kind of man you are. 
And it's the kind of man that you become when you do regulate your, your thoughts and your affections and your actions by your identity in Christ. And that's the kind of man who is a qualified man. It's a man who is regularly shepherding himself with the gospel. And he's pursuing these qualifications by God's grace. Our fifth discipline that we all know about again is our hermeneutic. It's the process by which a man grows in his understanding of the gospel. It's process by which a man grows biblically. It's a process by which a man grows theologically. We have three ways we do that here. We have what we have this morning here in BUILD. We want every man in our church to to go through this. We want every man to be enjoying close fellowship where he meets with a group of guys and talks regularly, talks weekly, every other week, about his walk with the Lord, about his prayer life, about the gospel, about Psalm 119. We have H3. This is for the man who's demonstrated himself to be faithful here in BUILD. He's participated well. He's eager. He loves the word. He wants to grow in his ability to assess God's word and study God's word. He wants to grow in his ability to use God's word in his relationship with others. We have a ministry, H3, and that's what that purpose is. It ends with a great preaching retreat. I had a great time last spring of the preaching retreat. There's nothing like hearing... 15 sermons each that are about 20 minutes in length from, from guys and just watching the fruit of, of the Holy Spirit working in a guy and how his message is powerful in a very different way than the next guy. We had guys preach from Psalms to First Peter. It was really good. And finally, we have GBI. This is for the man who has a specific, clear ministry objective that aligns really well with the purpose and the vision of our church. Which brings us to our last discipline, the vision and the purpose of our church. We've been saying this a lot, and we want to say it one more time this morning. We're going to say it next time we meet together. The vision is that we prize the glory of God. The glory of God is most clearly demonstrated at the cross of Jesus Christ, who gave his life for us. And when that cross is applied to a person... It brings about a transformation through the work of the Holy Spirit in a person's life. That is what we see, that is what we want, that is what we pursue. When we pursue the same thing, um, it's not boring, it's the same thing. It's fulfilling, it's fascinating. The more we talk about it, the more we think about it. It allows us to draw in, build up, and send out others. We want to draw in people because this is a place where people can come and minister to one another, where people can encourage one another. We want to build one another up with sharpening and equipping with the word. And we want to send people out, send people out into their neighborhoods, send people out across town, send people out across the planet to share the gospel and what it's done in our lives. So... Those are our disciplines. Keep those in front of you every week, and God will use you. You will be a, a fitting tool. You'll be a good instrument. I want to. I got a text from George Siegel this morning, and he was asking if um, I would make another plug for needing some help in setup and teardown. Um, and in fact, it, it blends in perfectly with what your homework is for this assignment today. Um, it's your. It's kind of what we've been. We, we've had this assignment since the very beginning, and I and I, I, I really like it because um, Sunday morning, when you're a church that does set up and tear down, and you're and you're a church in a box, um, your Sunday is so heavily 
it's heavy labor intensive. It's um, it requires a ton of servants just to make Sundays happen. Um, and so one of the things we did from the beginning is we, we just asked guys, okay, you know, what are you doing on Sundays that helps share the load, that you can shoulder up some of the weight of it? And that's everything from, you know, set up and tear down, obviously, to next generation ministries and, and whatnot. But George would really like to have some more... Uh, able-bodied guys to help out on Sunday mornings on either setup or teardown. Um, if you don't know who he is, um, I can direct you and point you to him. Um, or if anybody here wants to be the point guy for that, if you want to talk to somebody who's on setup teardown here, Steve, look like all of you are. Wow, praise God. George, there are no many any more men to help. <laughs> yeah. George, your setup and teardown crew is right here. <laughs> right. Sorry. Never mind. Uh, all right. No, but if, you, if you're not serving, that would be, we'd love to have you there. George would love to have you there. It's great fellowship, too. And it, and it just, it's a great way to serve the body. All right, well, let's pray. Let's, Acts chapter 6, verses 1 to 7 is where we're going to be. Um, understanding deacon leadership. So let's pray. Let's ask God to um, help us to see just really how important and crucial this is uh, for the church. Heavenly Father, we do want to see this, Lord. We want to see what it is that you were thinking at this point in the early church in Jerusalem. Um, And we want to see what um, your enemy was doing to try to destroy this young, fledgling um, fellowship of disciples, a congregation of disciples. We want to see, Lord, um, the wisdom that you gave the apostles and the early church to overcome a potentially scandalous um, uh, scandal in the church, God, that that could have ruined the reputation of the church um, and destroyed its ministry in Jerusalem. And, um, Lord, we are are in a day where uh, we, we can look at each one of us into our own hearts and just across the table at one another and each one of us is, carries the potential for scandal and, um, and Lord we need wisdom how to um, respond to trouble within the church so that we can make sure that the church continues to push forward the gospel into the community so God let us see something of your heart here this morning for the mission of the gospel. Let us see the need for the church to be wise and organized well so that it does not become impaired in its pursuit of the gospel. So Lord, we I pray that you would raise up many men here, Lord, to be deacons in this church or whatever church they end up at throughout their lives. I pray, God, for qualified men to come forward from the men of the church at Grace Bible Church. Lord, we need that for the sake of your gospel, for the sake of the mission. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Um, let me read Acts 6, 1 to 7 for you. And I'm going to let you look at three different passages that will kind of do a trajectory on disciple, or on, I'm sorry, on deacons. Acts 6, verse 1. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. 
So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid hands on them. And the word of God kept on spreading. And the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. <laughs> Paul planted after this, you know, it's going to be by Acts 9 by the time Paul uh, is converted. And, and Paul, from uh, chapter 11 on, is going to plant many churches across the Roman Empire. And one of them was in Philippi. Um, Acts chapter 16 is where his account of being in Philippi is recorded. But I want you now to turn to uh, Philippians chapter 1 for just a moment. Keep your hand in Acts 6. But I want you to look what is revealed from the time period at the end of Acts. Now let me, let me help you on the time period here. Acts 6, with the trouble between the, the Hellenistic Jews and the Hebrews, was probably around A.D. 34 in that time period, plus or minus. The ministry of the gospel in Jerusalem was not many years, but it was short. Um, it's hard to track down exactly how much. My opinion is it might have only been two or three years before Acts 8 and the church is scattered. Um, we're talking like Act, uh, like AD 34-ish um, when that took place. At the end of Acts, you know, Paul is left in prison in Rome. And that's when he wrote his prison epistles of which Philippians is one of them. That time period is probably close to A.D. 62. So now we're talking almost 30 years later. Not quite, right? Um, What do we find 30 years after Acts 6? Paul writes a letter to a church he planted, and he says in chapter 1, verse 1, Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, and out of the saints we're including... The overseers and the deacons. Okay? So by 62, by AD 62, there are offices of overseer, which is elder, and deacons. Okay? Not long after this, anywhere between 62 to 64, when Paul is released from prison, uh, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, Just a matter of within maybe even a year, He writes a letter when he is freed from prison in Rome to Timothy, who is in Ephesus. And in chapter 3, verse 8 of 1 Timothy, he says, well, we can even back up to verse 1. It's a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires. An overseer then must be, and then we have the qualifications for overseer or for elder. And then in verse 8, deacons likewise must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. These men must also first be tested. Then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Women or wives, likewise, must be dignified. 
not malicious gossips, not temper, uh, but temperate, faithful in all things. Deacons must be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and their households. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. All right, so, so what's the point here? Um, what is Acts 6 in comparison to uh, Philippians 3, or Philippians 1 and, and 1 Timothy 3? I think it's the seedbed for deacons. It's the seedbed that deacons grew out of. Okay? The seven back in Acts 6, if you turn there, they were not called deacons anywhere in that passage. And so in one sense, I think you've got to be careful to not call them deacons on one sense. On another sense, I'm okay to call them deacons because I think that's the seedbed out of which deacon leadership came. There's no doubt that later, fuller New Testament teaching about deacons, um, there's no doubt that it, it, shouldn't, that it should be connected to Acts 6. It should be. Um, but what I want us to see this morning is the, is the bigger context of what's going on, the role that it plays in the gospel mission from the church in the city of Jerusalem. I want to help you see how this passage then has also impacted Grace Bible Church in regards to deacon leadership. Um, and the subject of deacons is one of the most important subjects. I don't know if you believe this. You, you, you may not. Um, but the subject of deacons is one of the most important subjects for the local church to grasp. Now, when was the last time you were involved in a church where anybody even said that? We don't, we don't, we don't grasp this like we, we must yet, I don't think. Um, but I believe based on what's going on in Acts 6, that the church's effectiveness with the gospel is actually dependent on deacon leadership. And that's the case I, I hope we can make. So what I want to do is I want to give you five observations from Acts 6, 1 to 7, that, that shape our understanding of deacon leadership at Grace Bible Church as we advance the gospel. Are you ready? Number one, deacons exist primarily because the church must advance the gospel. That's the first blank, advance. Deacons exist primarily because the church must advance the gospel. That's a pretty bold statement to make, but I think that's exactly the point of what's going on in Acts 6. Uh, this is the most important observation. Uh, this is the one that we have to lead with because it centers on the big picture of the context of Acts 6 and the rise of deacon layer, uh, this deacon layer of servant leadership. This observation is about examining really the seedbed here that the deacon seeds sprouted in. So here's the question. What was the overall context? What was the overall mood going on when these seven men were raised up to serve? We, we talk, I think we were in this passage last summer um, on Sundays. But why did a deacon layer of servant leadership even arise? It, it arose because the gospel mission could not be slowed down in Jerusalem. It couldn't be postponed. It couldn't... The apostles did not want to hit pause. And that's why these seven men were raised up. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, they actually tell us. Look at Acts 6, verses 2 to 4. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples, and they said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. By the way, they weren't writing commentaries. That's not what they mean. You know, we're up in our ivory tower writing commentaries, and we don't want to neglect the Word of God. 
That's not what they mean. What were they doing? What does it mean that they don't want to neglect the word of God? What just happened? What's been going on? They've been taking the gospel into the city of Jerusalem. They've been arrested for it. They've been beaten for it. They won't shut up. And they say, I'm not going to neglect the word of God. What do they mean? We're not going to neglect the mission of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the city of Jerusalem. It's not desirous that we stop doing that. So let's have some deacons. Okay, that's the main idea here. Um, Therefore, brethren, select among you seven men of good reputation, etc. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Go back to chapter 5. Prayer and the ministry of the word. Watch this. Um, or I'm sorry, back to actually chapter uh, 4. The first time when they were arrested, four, verse 23, when they had been released, they went to their companions. They reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and they prayed. And you remember what happened when they were done praying? Verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak the word of God with boldness. What does he mean when he says, we're going to devote ourselves to to, to prayer and to the ministry of the word? We're going to keep praying because we need to, to be bold with the gospel mission. And in chapter 5, they just got beaten for it and threatened again. So why did a deacon layer of servant leadership arise? It was because the gospel mission could not be slowed down. It couldn't be paused. It couldn't be postponed, even for a legitimate complaint. Widows weren't being fed. So don't miss making the connection here um, for us between a deacon layer of leadership and the expansion of the gospel message and the mission of the church in Jerusalem. When you read these early chapters of Acts, when you see the apostles not wanting to lose any steam or power or momentum for their mission, what, are you should, what should you think of? When you see these men not wanting to slow down at all, here's what you should think of. Deacons! A servant layer of leadership coming up because the gospel can't stop. It has to go. When you see the gospel stretching and spreading into every corner of Jerusalem, even to the priests of the temple, chapter 6, verse 7, a great many of the priests have become obedient to the faith. What should you think of? A servant layer of leadership arising in the church to assist the apostles. That's the connection you can't miss. The gospel mission of the church is not losing steam and a deacon layer of leadership go together. Now, I think a lot of times you can think of complaints in a church or a problem in the church and you associate, you make the connection between that and deacons. Deacons are needed for that. Is that true? Yes. Mick. Uh, how long That's a good question. This is a quick one. Yeah. Um, I can guarantee you this. The elders of this church are not that quick. Um, but when, when, we, when we do see it, we do start to look for a man. And um, the, the overall process of like what they did with the, with the congregation selecting from among them 
seven men of good reputation, the process we go through by which we're evaluating that man's reputation according to 1 Timothy 3 um, is slow and it's careful and it takes longer than shorter. But we do, you know, where we see it, we start to ask ourselves a question, what, who, who should we have do this if it's not something we should do? A lot of times it takes us far longer to figure out that we shouldn't be doing it and that we need somebody else to do it. We're just pretty slow on that. But um, we'll talk a little bit more about that when we get to the last point. Um, so the, the, the thing that I think happens, it's easy to make the connection between there's a need in the church and deacons. And that's right, and that's good, but that's not what the overall context is trying to be. That's not what Luke's trying to demonstrate here. I don't think that's what the Holy Spirit's trying to demonstrate. Uh, what's, What's being demonstrated here in these chapters of Acts is the two things that connect together is the gospel can't be slowed down, and we need deacons or a servant layer of leadership. Okay? If you make the connection between deacons and needs within the church, that's too small of thinking too small. It includes that, but it's much more than that. Okay? The church should not be slowed down in the gospel mission. Why does a church need a deacon layer of leadership? Because its elders will probably get involved in things that the elders should not be involved in. Even legitimate needs that are important. But being involved in them, it will inevitably slow the elders strategizing for the gospel mission of the church. Um, that's the connection to make. Um, let me run through a, a few different deacon options here at our church. If, if we didn't have a deacon and other servant leaders planning and leading other servants in the body to make a gym ready for corporate worship, what do you think the elders would probably be doing? Thinking about that far more than they should, maybe even doing it. If we didn't have a deacon and other servant leaders planning and leading other servants in the body to thoughtfully care for children on Sunday mornings, uh, during a worship service from newborns on up to grade five and, and, and even beyond, what, what do you think your elders would be doing? They'd be compelled to step in and think about that and give their time to that. If a deacon wasn't investing his time and skill in looking for a permanent facility for Grace Bible Church, what do you think the elders would be doing? Um, if a deacon wasn't helping newer people in the body become more aware of what GBC was really all about um, with Discovery Dinner and, and that ministry and Frontlines, um, an elder would probably be trying to find time to do that. If, if, if Josh Kelso wasn't planning a, a worship service uh, with a, you know, equipping a band and, and, and a ministry team to lead us in worship, elders would probably be giving thought to that. If Jeff wasn't helping us get started with thinking about benevolence needs in our church, I mean, elders, in fact, the elders have been doing that far more than we should. Um, I just walked through the six main areas where we've had deacons. Um, and we need many more areas where there's deacon leadership. So, yeah. um, I'm just curious, like in a situation like Josh Kelso, who's on the uh, elder internship, mm-hmm. when that goes through, then then what? Does he? Yeah, yeah. He his um he will he may still serve there, uh you know, and have a presence there, but um, he obviously won't be called a deacon anymore. Same thing with Eric Martin. Um, those two guys kind of have an asterisk by their name, you know. They're guys who are currently deacons in the process of transitioning towards um, elder ministry, Lord willing. Um, but, you know, he may still have a, a, a role there, but we'll probably be looking for a deacon, another man to be raised up into that place. Um, so, uh, yeah. And same thing with Eric within Next Generation Ministries, where he 
um, has been serving as a deacon. So it's a good question. I can tell you what makes my heart race as an elder. Um, it's seeing the elders plan and strategize and plotting forward without restrictions on them to think about how do we want to send the gospel out. Um, church planting, ideally, um, the expansion of the gospel mission, missionaries going forward, training men to be godly men, to be pure instruments who, who can not only preach the gospel, but be men who can shepherd new churches wherever they get planted. Um, that's a unique role that the elders are called to in a local church. Um, and so whatever hinders elders from thinking that way or giving thought to that, we need to have deacon leadership step in. Um, and so then if, if a church doesn't have the right breadth and depth of deacon leadership in the church, um, it, it is going to be true that the extension of the gospel, expansion of the gospel, is going to be affected somehow by that. You may not recognize it, but it will be. Um, Maybe it even can become stagnated. And so deacons need to exist in the local church. Deacons need to exist in Grace Bible Church in full force. Um, And I I think we're still in the process of trying to get that ramped up here. Why? So that the gospel mission has as least number of restrictions on it um, as the elders plan and strategize. So there's the first observation that's shaped our understanding of deacons. We want to think really big, as big as Scripture thinks about deacons and why they exist. I've shared this in the past. I think I've, over the years, um, I think I've been a part of nine different churches. Um, The last three churches have been, you know, almost ten years here, almost eight and a half years at Camelback, and about four years in a church in L.A. um, at Grace Community there. So, and then before that, I mean, it was just like, boom, 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 one church after another, which I'm, I'm ashamed to say. But um, in nine different churches I've been at, I have seen nine different approaches to deacons. Um, I, I, just, I don't want it to be that way here. I don't want to be like, well, there's one of nine different ways to do it. No, there's one way. And I don't mean like that you have to do our methodology for it. But I mean, there's, there's this view of deacons, I think, that's here in Acts 6. They're huge. They're important. It needs to be right up there with everything else that's near and dear to the heart of the church. You would never go to, well, I shouldn't say this. I would hope you would never go to a church where a church said, you know what? Elders, are, we, can, we can love them or leave them. But we can go to churches where there's deacons, Ah, we can love them or leave them. That's not why they are here in Acts 6. You don't get that sense from Peter and the apostles at all. This is crucial. It's at the heart of what the church is here for. Let's talk about the second observation that has shaped the way we understand deacon leadership. Number two, deacons personally exemplify commitment to the gospel mission. This is just another way of saying number one. Saying number one, the way that we did is like the big picture. The church has a gospel mission that's on and deacons exist because of that. Now, deacons personally exemplify that commitment to the gospel mission. In Acts 6, it wasn't just the 12 
who exemplified a strong and unrelenting commitment to the expansion of the gospel, the extension of the gospel from the church into Jerusalem. The seven men were men of like heart on that. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, let me start with the apostles, and then we'll make the connection to the deacon layer of leadership. And um, go back to Acts 1, verse 8. This is where you get to understand a little bit of what um, Luke is trying to do when he's emphasizing the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. Luke is not writing to give a full pneumatology. Okay? He's not writing to show you everything that every ministry aspect that the Holy Spirit does. He's not writing to show you primarily what regeneration is like. He's not writing to show you what the Holy Spirit's role is in sanctification. He's got one thing in particular that is his predominant theme with the Holy Spirit that he wants to give. And that's what I want to show you in connection with the apostles first, okay? Uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But um, Jesus said, it's not for you to know the times or the epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority in regards to the restoring of the kingdom to Israel, verse 6. But right now, guys, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Okay, so uh, in other words, I don't have that power, an apostle would say at that moment, but I I will receive it. And um, that power is connected to the Holy Spirit. And then what next, Jesus? And, verse 8, you shall be my witnesses. Oh, so to witness, there needs to be a power. And that power is connected with the Holy Spirit, and I don't have that yet. That's the point. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, even to the remote parts of the earth, right? So Jesus said the nature of the apostles and of the coming church was such that it would need power from the Holy Spirit to do what Jesus was calling them to do in witnessing. They did not inherently possess the required power for witnessing. Do you understand that? The witnesses themselves are weak. Witnesses are weak. This gospel witnessing that will go on, this gospel testifying and proclaiming and preaching, it requires power from none other than God himself. The preaching doesn't ask for human ingenuity or cleverness. God is saying you need power, which is me in connection with the Holy Spirit. Um, So what happened then at Pentecost to the 12? Look at chapter 2, verse 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Now contextually, what does that mean? It means here he is, the one that you need power, uh, that you need power from in connection with. And they began to speak with other tongues. Well, what does that mean? Verse 11 uh, of chapter 2. We hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. What are they doing? They're proclaiming the greatness of God in earthly languages. Um, That's pretty unique. Go to chapter 2, verse 33. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, Peter, as he's explaining this in his sermon, he says, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit... He has poured forth this, which you both see and hear. What the Holy Spirit was doing in terms of giving power um, was visible to the eye, and it was you were able to hear it through the speaking of what they were doing. Um, Look at verse 38. Peter told them, 
Repent in each of you. Be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Contextually, what is he talking about? You need this Spirit for power for witnessing also. We think of a full-fledged New Testament pneumatology. You need to be born, and this is where then you get all the trouble. So you have to be, when does born again happen? After you get baptized? No, this is power from the Spirit for witnessing. It's what he's teaching. Um, Chapter 4, verse 7. Peter and, and John get arrested, and when they had placed them in the center, they began to inquire. Listen, this is so great. This is the temple leadership. And they come, and you remember Peter healed this man? And what, what do they say in verse 7? By what power? Could they tell that these guys had power? Yes. Of course, a, a man was raised from, uh, from his lameness to walk. Yes, absolutely. There's power here. In what name have you done this? And Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we're on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how he's been made well, well, etc. So, fullness of the Holy Spirit upon Peter, repeatedly, coming and then coming again. What for? For the proclamation and boasting in the name of our Savior. Look at chapter 4, verse 13. And as they observed the confidence of Peter and John, and they understood that they were weak men, they were uneducated and untrained, they were amazed. And then they said, ah, these guys were with Jesus. Chapter 5, verse 32. They're threatened to not speak anymore, but they continue to do that. And we just read this after the end of their prayer. And we are witnesses of these things um, I think I missed a verse I wanted to get. Oh, chapter 4, verse 31. I'm sorry, I missed that one. When they had prayed and the place that they had gathered together was shaken, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and what? Now, with what you know, if all you've read is the first part of Acts, they're filled with the Holy Spirit and then what? They speak. You see, what is Luke trying to show us here in regards to the role in the ministry of the Holy Spirit? He's trying to show us one thing about the Holy Spirit. He's not trying to teach us everything about the Holy Spirit, but this one thing. When the Spirit of God comes upon you in Acts, you open your mouth and you preach the gospel and you testify with boldness. That's what happens. Chapter 5, verse 32. Yes, Kyle. When it says they were filled with the Holy Spirit, how does that work when they're already filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, the point is, is they weren't. This, see, what, what you have to distinguish between is indwelling, which Luke isn't even touching on. What he is trying to show us is that there is a filling of the Spirit that comes, and then it comes, and then it comes, and then it comes. For what? Bold proclamation of the gospel. That's what he's showing us for the apostles. So, yes, you can be indwelt, and you must have the fullness of the Holy Spirit come upon you as is said here in Acts for these men um, in the proclamation of the gospel. We'll talk about what's changed from then to now and what hasn't in just a moment, okay? Because that's obviously where you get some serious tension. Um, But chapter 5, verse 32. Peter again is 
speaking, and he says, we are witnesses of these things in regards to God granting to Israel a savior, a prince, who will grant them repentance. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Again, contextually for what? For witnessing. Here's the great thing. You know what? The great witness with a capital W, who is the Holy Spirit, you know he's the best witness of Jesus? He's a witness of these things. God gives himself, who is the witness, to weak witnesses so they be powerful like he is in witnessing. Okay? And so that's the flow up to Acts chapter 6. So when Acts 6 comes, I'll go back to Acts chapter 6, and these Holy Spirit, Holy, cons- Holy Spirit concerned apostles say in verse 3, Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit. What does he mean? People are in the same vein as what has been going on. It is not an option to pick a man for this ministry need who is not bold in the proclamation of the gospel that the Spirit brings. These men must be this way too. It must mean at a minimum that the seven men had to be known as men who were also personally reliant upon the Holy Spirit for the extension of the gospel with power into Jerusalem. It has to, at a minimum, start there. That they were also men like the apostles in that they exemplified commitment to preaching the gospel with the Spirit's power in Jerusalem. The primary indicator of that power is fullness of the Spirit. Now, the good question to ask was, is there any evidence in Acts that any of these seven men were actually like this? And there's two of them that stand out. Let's talk about Stephen first. Is there any evidence that Stephen was a man full of the Spirit and power in the proclamation of the gospel? The whole next chapter is about that, isn't it? Look at chapter 6, verse 5. The statement found approval of the whole congregation and they chose Stephen, listed first, because he's going to be the next guy they talk about. And what, how is he described? A man full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. Uh, look at chapter 6, verse 8. Stephen, full of grace and power. I wonder what that power is associated with. The Holy Spirit. He was performing great wonders and signs among the people. Look at verse 10. But they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit. Do you see how Luke is just easy to, it's easy for him to transition back and forth between talking about full of power, full of the spirit, full of power, full of the spirit. Same idea in mind. Look at chapter 7, verse 51, when he is at the end of his preaching. Oh, man, he says this. Just think about this contextually. You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, You are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You're doing just as your fathers did. What does that mean contextually? You're resisting regeneration? Well, yeah, they are. But are you resisting the Spirit's work in sanctification? Is that what the context has been? No, what are you resisting? The Holy Spirit has come upon God's anointed ones to bring the gospel, to bring the truth of God to bear on you, and you're just like your fathers. You've been always resisting that spirit who comes on prophets in the Old Testament, and they preach. He's indicting them that they are just like the nation has always been. 
Verse 55, one last time. Being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and he saw the glory of God in Jesus standing at the right hand of God. The twelve apostles wanted a man like that to feed widows. To step into the lives of widows widows who are being neglected. The apostles wanted a man like that to step into people who were complaining. Complainers needed... Did they have a legitimate complaint? Yeah, they did. But they wanted complainers to be around that kind of man. What about Philip? He's the other guy. Was he committed to the extension of the gospel? Well, how about Acts 8? Remember this. Therefore, those who, verse 4, who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and he began proclaiming Christ to them. The crowds with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip as they heard it and saw the signs which he was performing. For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of him shouting with a loud voice and many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was much rejoicing in that city. Go to verse 12, chapter 8. But when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. Verse 26, An angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Get up and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. That is, it's a dirt road. And so he got up and he went. Verse 29, And the Spirit said to Philip, Go up and join this chariot. Uh, Verse 35, Then Philip opened his mouth, beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. Verse 39, when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away and the eunuch no longer saw him, but went on his way rejoicing. But Philip was found at Azotus and as he passed through, he kept preaching the gospel to all the cities until he came to Caesarea. Was Philip a man who was committed to the gospel, proclamation and testifying and expansion? Absolutely. He's a man under the control of the Holy Spirit, uniquely so, right? In a pretty unique way. What about the next time we bump into Philip in Acts? How about Acts 21? Go there. Verse 8. Acts 21, verse 8. By Acts 21, Saul has become the great missionary planter that he is, and... um, he is, on his missionary journeys, he's crisscrossed the Roman Empire. He's making his way back to Jerusalem, but he wants to stop at Philip's house on the way in Caesarea. Verse 8. On the next day we left and we came to Caesarea and we entered the house of Philip the bread server. No, that's not what it says. We entered the house of Philip the widow comforter. It doesn't say that. Philip the evangelist. That's how he's known. By Acts 21. He's Philip the Evangelist. Alright, so back to Acts 6. Don't miss this. The twelve apostles were men who were obviously committed to the extension of the gospel. But get this. They wanted men also committed to that kind of gospel extension to feed widows. To shepherd widows who were facing bitterness. I'm being overlooked Have you not read the law, what it says about God's heart for widows? What is going on here? God, through the apostles, is making it clear that those women facing those kinds of challenges need men stepping into their lives who are committed to the extension of the gospel. So deep in the heart of the church, 
where poor widows who couldn't provide for themselves were enduring a trial. Deep there. It's an injustice. There, those women needed to come face to face with the greater call of the church in the gospel as they ate the bread they desperately needed. Do you understand that? To be a deacon is huge. And how do they come face to face with that extension of the gospel mission? How are they reminded of it? Living right in front of them, speaking right in front of them, caring for them, serving them right in front of them as Stephen and Philip and five other men. Now what effect would that have on in the bowels of the church where a woman is being overlooked? What effect would that have on the church in regards to how it thinks about its gospel mission? Right there at a critical place, it gets a huge injection of the big calling of why we are here. It is to proclaim the gospel. (coughs) Now many things have changed since these early pages of Acts today, but what has not changed? Has the nature of disciples, the weak nature of disciples, changed since Acts 1.8? Do we now all of a sudden inherently just have power all the time? Not any more than they did. We are weak witnesses and we need divine power in the gospel mission. Listen, God was not content then for weak disciples to extend the gospel mission in their own power. And has he now become content that we do that? In our own power? No. We must still have fullness of the Holy Spirit for power. The testifying of the gospel is powerless without the fullness of the Holy Spirit in my life. Not talking about the indwelling spirit. We are indwelt, we are sealed in him, but the fullness of him to come upon us for testifying, for proclaiming, for preaching is as necessary today as it was then. Another way to ask it, does the power of the gospel today run on a different power than it did in Acts, early pages of Acts? What indication do we have from the rest of the New Testament that it runs on a different power? It doesn't run on a different power. You know that. What I need, what you need, what we all need, what deacons need, is to be men full of the Holy Spirit for the sake of the extension of the gospel mission. Now, Let me say some more about this. I think it's really exciting. I I don't know if... This is an important day. I don't know if you recognize how important a day it is that you live in, that we live in. It's an exciting day to live in where many Christians have rediscovered the need for the Holy Spirit in regards to regeneration. That is being rediscovered in a way uh, that is unique, tied intimately with the doctrines of grace. It, It is huge. It's very important. It wasn't like that. It wasn't like that even when I became a Christian in 1985. It wasn't so prominent across the landscape. Um, We must be born again by the Holy Spirit, right? That's so good to rediscover that. And it's exciting to live in a day where um, the ministry of the Holy Spirit uh, in regards to growth and sanctification, that's being rediscovered, that we need to be believers who walk 
by the Spirit and not by the flesh, and we're putting to death the deeds of the flesh by the power of the Holy Spirit, coming back to the gospel, that is so good and that is so right. But I think we need to go even one step further and rediscover our need for the Holy Spirit for the proclamation of the gospel, for empowerment for the extension of the gospel beyond its current boundaries. And I'll tell you what, I'll be honest with you in regards to me, I think I've been deceived into thinking that because I'm indwelt by the Spirit, I automatically have the power. And it just doesn't appear to me that that is different. Um, or that, 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 is, that that's the case of what's going on in, Acts, in, the, in the pages of Acts. Uh, even in the rest of the New Testament, I don't see what would change that. Now, the way that the Holy Spirit worked and the way that he demonstrated his power, that's up to him. And if he did that in a certain way that was unique in affirming the apostles and in affirming that new revelation from God is coming, and so the Spirit is even going to bring about miracles and signs and wonders so that people listen to these men as revelation comes, that's up to the Spirit of God. The expectation in wanting the fullness of the Spirit now is not that I do signs and wonders or you, but that we need the power of the Spirit for proclamation. What does Paul say? Can I, can I remind us, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. When I came to you, brethren, I didn't come to you with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of what? The spirit and of power. Why? So that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. We even looked at this in 1 Thessalonians. Do you remember this? When we talked about this in chapter 1. Our gospel did not come to you in word only, but it also came in power. Whose power was that? Do you remember? It came in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be. Who's he talking about? You remember? He was a man of power. That's how he was sure that they were among God's elect. That the power of the gospel invaded Thessalonica through the preaching of the apostles. I don't think there's any words anywhere that assume that fullness of the Holy Spirit is present at all times. The unfolding of Acts 1-8 to suggests, I think, just the opposite. Look, Holy Spirit regenerated men, Holy Spirit indwelt men, Holy Spirit sanctified men depended also on the fullness of the Holy Spirit to proclaim. And deacons did too. Well, what about us? Look, I am not in this at all. I want to be really clear. I am not making a case for any of the charismania that you've seen anywhere. I'm not making a case for that at all. Do you understand? I want to distance myself and my statements from that. That's not at all. The Spirit's control of me and of you and the fullness probably isn't going to look like it did for Stephen and Philip in every detail. This is the fullness of the Holy Spirit for boldness of proclamation. I think one of the greatest just examples, they prayed, the place where they were gathered was shaken, they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Filled with the Spirit, 
And you're a bold proclaimer. I don't see a change in that. I think we need to rediscover that. I think because charismania has has taken such a hold that good reformed men, I think, go too far the other way and they miss this. It's my opinion. Um, but deacons, we're talking about deacons, servant layer of leadership. They must be men fully committed to the extension of the gospel. The apostles wanted that kind of a man addressing a ministry need in the church. The third observation that has shaped our understanding is this one. Deacons exemplify godly character before the church body. Godly character. Character is your word to fill in the blank. We get this in Acts 6, verse 3. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation. That was a broad character category. What do we need? We need men of good reputation. Right? kind of an umbrella term. That's what guided the church in its early days. And, and then notice how the Holy Spirit brought much greater definition to that good reputation description later in 1 Timothy 3, verses 8 to 13. What's meant by a good reputation? It's spelled out there for us. Why the emphasis on character? Why would Peter think of that first? Seven men uh, of good reputation. In fact, why is that so important for elders as well? Why for these two offices of leadership in the church is character such an important thing? Well, let's start with just the basics on this. Um, For all Christians, all saints, all believers, the gospel does this. Let's think about what the gospel does for us all. The gospel powerfully cleanses you, transforms you as you are a believer, right? The one who believes is declared righteous positionally before God. We know that. But also, uh, that one has power from God for righteous living every day. So you get this positional declaration of righteousness over you, but you also in the gospel have a power to pursue righteous living that's in alignment with your position. And the goal for the rest of your life is you're trying to close the gap on your practice of righteousness and your position of righteousness, and you will get there when you die. Right? So why the emphasis on character for this layer of leadership in the church? Well, according to the New Testament, God wants both of these leadership layers, the elders and the deacons, to be examples to the rest of the church for holiness of life. It's not that the elders are to be holy along with the deacons and then the rest of the church can be whatever they want. Right? It's not that at all. Paul actually made it clear in Philippians 2. Turn there for me, uh, with me for a second. Let's look at this. Watch what he says to the, the church. Philippians 2, verse 15. Philippians 2, verse 15. Backing up to verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be, watch this, blameless. Who's he talking to? The elders? The deacons? Talking to all. Blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach. Blameless and above reproach. You know, those two are the two words that are used in the pastoral epistles for an elder qualification. To be above reproach, to be blameless. But who's he talking to? The church. You're to be children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding, holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory, but I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. 
It was up to each believer to prove himself to be that in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Listen, guys, every Christian is to be a light, a moral light in a perverse and immoral world. Gospel lights, that's what we all are. All of us. Innocent. All of us blameless. All of us above reproach. Okay, so then why are deacons asked and elders are asked and required to be leaders in that? Because God wants the church to have leading examples of what it looks like to be above reproach. What it looks like to be blameless. Examples of holiness of life for the rest. The ones who lead the body forward in blamelessness. In good reputation living. As you are striving for innocence, as you're striving for blamelessness, Lord willing, hopefully you can look to your elders and your deacons as examples for you in innocence and blamelessness. So at the foundational level, that's why deacon must have good reputation. But consider this also. When the gospel is being pushed and proclaimed through the city like it was in Jerusalem, or in a neighborhood in Chandler where we live, or a tribal people in PNG, if the believers extending that gospel are compromising in their character then the message of Jesus loses its credibility. Imagine, put yourself back into Jerusalem when this was going on. Think of the potentially devastating obstruction to the gospel that would have resulted if the church did not address this need of Greek widows being fed, uh, of not being fed. A neighbor, an unbelieving neighbor in Jerusalem could say to a Greek widow, who's considering believing the gospel of Jesus Christ. An unbeliever could say to that Greek widow, don't listen to that group. Don't listen to them. Do you see how they treat women like you? Why would you want to be a part of them? Why would you want to believe their message? Do you see how character matters? Character can't be separated away from the proclamation and the extension of the gospel. Deacons are the ones that need to exemplify the very godly character that is required in the ungodly situation they're stepping into. It was ungodly for the the Hebrew believing Jews to not want the Greek speaking Jews who are widows to have food. Maybe they thought they were better. Well, we haven't compromised culturally we are true Jews. We, we haven't learned the Greek language. We're not adopting Greek culture practice. You guys have. We get to eat and you don't. Who knows what's behind it? We're not told. But character matters. It validates and points to the legitimacy of the, of the message. So deacons exemplify godly character before the church. That's why there's a list in 1 Timothy 3. Uh, Fourth observation. Deacons exemplify two things here. Humble service as they meet specific needs. There's your two blanks. Humble service and specific needs. Humble service as they meet specific needs in the church. Uh, What can't be missed here in this chapter is the servant language that is used. Um, Serve tables. Serving tables. Uh, the Romans didn't like this word for service at all. Uh, Romans didn't aspire to serve tables. Um, 
to wait on people. It wasn't a goal in the life for them to grow up and one day serve tables. That's what I want to do with my life. No Roman thought that way. But humble service like this is exactly what the moment called for in the church. All for the sake of the gospel mission. Who waits tables anyway? Is there anybody here who, like, that's, because there are some people who do this. I've, I've met people like, what they want to do with their life is they want to wait tables. Yeah, literally, like be a waiter. Is there anybody here who's that way? Do you know anybody that they're, they're like, you know what, this is just what I want to do with my life. When I lived in L.A., I, I met people, women who were in their 40s, in their 50s, and they'd been waiting tables for, for 30 years, and they wanted to do that until they died. They loved it. Who, who knows it? Do you know anybody like that? You see, that is foreign in our... Look, I'm not saying that it's not appealing sometimes to think about doing that compared to what you're doing, but um, here's how I've viewed waiting tables, because I did it one period in my life as well. Um, for me, waiting tables is a service that you tolerate as you hope to elevate yourself towards something greater. Right? That kind of thinking isn't very far off from what they thought in the first century. Um, And yet what the church needed at this moment was godly men. Men who loved the extension of the gospel to humble themselves and aspire to this. And this is the way that God is. Did you know that? This is the way that God is. Mark 10.45 The Son of Man did not come to be served, but what? To To serve. And to give his life a ransom for many. That is the very nature of God, for God to humble himself and give himself away. Philippians 2, verse 5 and following. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, to use for his own self-aggrandizement. I don't think you know who you're dealing with here. When did Jesus ever say that? He didn't use it to promote himself, his own equality with God. What did he do? He emptied himself. He took on the form of a slave, pouring himself out to death. The head of the church is a servant. Can a member under that head not be a servant? No. And the apostles don't suggest that this ministry in the body is a stepping stone ministry. Look, just do this for a while and then we'll get you into an elder position somewhere. They don't, they don't act that way. This is like, no, aspire to this. Evidently, it looks like the early church had no trouble finding seven men in their group ready and willing to humbly serve. And so the first deacons exemplified that humility and that humble service. Um, but notice how I, I worded number four. They met specific needs in the, in the church. Um, and, and that comes down to verse, at the end of verse three, that we may put in charge of this task. What's interesting in, in Acts 6 is how the deacon of, layers, uh, of leadership didn't arise. Okay, the deacon layer of leadership, it didn't arise all on its own, distinct or separate from a specific need. It wasn't like the apostles thought, you know what? We just need to have like this this next layer of guys ready to go that they can just, I don't know, kind of be on the bench. It didn't come up like that at all. But rather specific need. As Mick asked about earlier, there's a need within this body to search for a a more permanent home. 
a facility for the church um, so that we have the freedom to do what we want to do for training men, equipping the saints, especially during the week if we wanted to, more broadly on Sundays if we wanted to. And so the elders have decided that searching for a property is not something that we want to do as elders, but so for that task, we've appointed a guy named Mike Crusoe. Um, that's what he does. And we've got five other guys who are like that in different tasks, different areas. Now, some of those tasks will be ongoing for the life of our church. Um, some of them aren't. Mike's task will not be, Lord willing, ongoing for the rest of the life of the church. Um, so then what do you do with him then when his task is complete? He has no idea that 35 guys are talking about him this morning. Um, what do we do then? He becomes Mike the Evangelist. That's right. That's really good. <laughs> That's really good. Thank you for going with Philip and not Stephen for him. That's good. <laughs> huh? Yeah, we martyr him. That's what we do. No. But when the task comes to an end, then the, the office of deacon comes to an end. Does that mean that Mike is not character qualified for deacon? No, it doesn't, ha- doesn't make any statement on that, but it means the task is done. And he stands ready for any other task, Lord willing, that we might want to appoint him to. So it, if everybody would just stop having kids, we won't need any deacons anymore. <laughs> Eventually, when they all grow up. And <laughs> Specific tasks. It's task-driven, I think. I think that's the example that's, that's given. Um, that's the way we're shaping our approach to deacons. I've been a part of churches where deacons are just this class, this layer of guys. I don't know, really know what they do, but they just exist all of the time. They're just there. Nobody can get a, a lasso around them, but they're there. Um, that's not what this is all about, right? Let's talk about the last observation. Number five, deacons exemplify courage in the face of complaints and controversies in the church. Acts chapter 6, verse 1. At this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, that's when a complaint arose. Doggone it. That's the world we live in, right? The gospel is just going in Jerusalem and a complaint arises. That word for complaint means literally this. It means a low-toned, behind-the-scenes mumbling. This is the grumbling that goes on when nobody else is, you know, you know, you're grumbling about it. You don't want really anybody else to hear, but this is what's going on. A serious cultural conflict is going on within the church. It's scandalous. This is not a minor matter. Everyone knew that neglecting any widow with a true need was a serious charge. But to neglect her because she had simply assimilated into Greek culture, that even made it more scandalous. That added greater shock to the neglect. The church knows here that a serious injustice has taken place. A great offense is right before them. And no doubt there would have been emotions just flaring up everywhere. Opinions abounding. What do you think of stepping into the middle of that? What do you think? I mean, really, you. What do you think of that? Is that what makes you want to get out of bed in the mornings? Lord, help me to step into the middle of complainers and help them. 
The seven were raised up to courageously do just that. To step into that complaint. Listen, not stomp on it, but step into it. (coughs) The twelve in the church um, thought that the seven would need both faith and wisdom. They need to be men of good reputation, full of spirit and the wisdom. Uh, Verse 5, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Faith and wisdom is needed for these guys. They would need to be men who trusted God that he would help them bring his wisdom to bear on the whole matter, on each life that is impacted by the complaint. What kind of a man wants to do that? What kind of a man wants to step into that kind of a complaint and bring God's wisdom to bear on the situation? Are you that kind of man? Do you want to be that kind of man? I want you to be that kind of man. (laughs) Your elders need you to be that kind of man. We need those kinds of men in the church. (coughs) Here's the honest truth. I want to just be honest with you. You guys already know this. You probably already experienced this. Um, Injustices happen at Grace Bible Church. They do. Nobody gets up in the morning thinking, you know what, how can I create an injustice in my church today? Nobody wants to do that, but offenses do occur. And there are legitimate complaints in Grace Bible Church, just like there was in the church in Jerusalem, just like there are in every single church. And the reason that they are there is because I am here and because you are here, right? It's who we are, unfortunately, We are still under the influence of indwelling sin within us. And so we automatically at times will create injustices and offenses on a regular basis for one another. And as those who are sometimes overcome by sin from time to time, we then also complain against one another. We grumble. And I'm not saying this to justify any of that. It's just an observation. So injustices and offenses take place at Grace Bible Church And that's because complainers and grumblers go here, attend this church, are members of this church. I'm one of them. You're one. And the question is, are you a man of courage who is willing to step into the middle of that sometimes whenever it's needed to trust him and to step into it to bring the gospel to bear on those complaints also that what? what? What's the whole point here? What's the whole passage about? So that the complaint doesn't become toxic and obstruct the momentum of the gospel from the church into the community. If the complaint spreads throughout the church like a cancer in the body, the, the body will become spiritually sick and it will be rendered ineffective for the gospel. Have you ever seen this happen at a church? Oh my goodness. The best way to stop a church is not from the outside in, but just get somebody in the middle who's got a complaint and they won't let it go. And, and the church doesn't send a godly, qualified man into the middle of it to solve it, to shepherd and care for the people. It becomes a, a really warm Petri dish. It's growing the offense. What do you think about stepping into the crossfire of two people, the McCoys and the Hatfields? Bang, 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 bang. What do you think about standing in between that? That's what deacons would have been doing. Here, that's what we need. Now look, Mike Caruso, not all all tasks are this way. Mike Caruso doesn't have warring parties that he's stepping between. (laughs) 
Um, neither, neither does George. Jeff might sometimes. <laughs> but we, um, but not every deacon task is that way. But what do those people in those situations need to see? They need to see the big picture again of the gospel extending deeper and deeper into enemy territory, offering a pardon to rebels. And who brings that to bear on them? It's the deacon, the man who's full of the spirit, who wants the gospel to be proclaimed everywhere. A holy man, a godly man, that all parties involved will see a man who's exemplifying the very holy character that they may actually be struggling themselves to personally demonstrate at the moment. good reputation. Listen, if there'd be anything that I'd want you to step away with, it'd be this one thing in regards to deacons, whether it's here at Grace Bible Church or wherever you go, I would want you to walk away knowing and believing that deacons are not a negotiable layer of leadership in the local church. They are not. Fortunately, they are. Oftentimes misunderstood but it is not a negotiable layer of leadership. They are an essential layer of servant leadership in the church, all for the sake of the gospel continuing to expand. What we'll do next time, what Scott will do with you is, is he'll walk you through the list of deacon qualifications and we'll give you a tool that you can use to um, hopefully on a weekly basis, you can actually pray through the deacon qualifications for yourself so that you can be setting those qualifications in front of you saying, Lord, I aspire to this. Help me to be a leader in these qualities that every other Christian is called to exemplify, but help me to become a leader in that. Okay? Any questions or comments? Any other? Omri, what do you got? You mentioned before that the elders view our church's view on deacons, especially not being negotiable, has (coughs) been a process, right? At what point did the elders realize that this was an issue? Because I hear you saying if we would if there was a church that we were considering, right? That should be something we should be thinking about. What's, what are their deacons like? What, what do they think about deacons? If a church was at the point that we were at at one point, how would we think through that? Yeah. Tom, do you remember what... I, I, I remember, but... Uh, I remember... I hate to make this look terrible, but... I will. Uh, <laughs> we were convinced that we had to have deacons. We were convinced uh, of the biblical uh, paradigm that that we should have, that the the church must have deacons. Uh, For a couple of the elders, we came from a church that didn't have deacons. We were convinced this church needed deacons, but scripture isn't really clear on exactly what people know should be. Uh, there's some that are to be obvious in the midst of a conflict like Acts 6. And it, it was not, it wasn't that we sat around 
Praise God. Here we are. We were convinced.